you want. And she said, peace out. We'd like, like my auntie said, we'd like supporters to come out and pray with us, stand here and be strong with us. And we just need uh, more people to be out here. We can stop this. We have the teepee here. It'll be staying up. We have a fire going. It'll be going all night, trying to be going all night. But um, we're just asking for supporters to come out. Come pray with us. It don't matter if you go to church or the locals around here, you can come ranchers, you know. If you oppose this, come on out because they're going to take your water. They're going to dry your land up. So come and support us. That's all I got to say. Welcome to What's Left, a weekly political discussion challenging the mainstream left. I'm Eduardo Barca with Cocos, teacher and social Sandy Lipson, and writer and teacher Jessica. We are online at whatsleftpodcast.com. You can find that link to our site in the episode notes. You can also find our personal social media handles as at Don Eduardo Barca uh, on Instagram and Jessica's Twitter handles at, as at jhomie89. Uh, please subscribe, rate, review, turn on your notifications and share your favorite episode where you found this episode. Right, so uh, today today we'll be covering uh, uh, our our interview with uh, Max Wilbert, uh, organizer, writer, wilderness guide. Uh, Max Wilbert uh, is uh, the person that we had wanted to originally uh, have on what's left when we had recorded, but unfortunately it was a mishap. And then we covered Thacker Pass last week, and so. I'm very appreciative, Max. You're here. I don't know if any Andy or Jesse want to add anything. Um, just that I'm really grateful, Max, for you uh, will, being willing to come back. It was embarrassing, to be honest. Just not recording a whole conversation, but I still felt like, at the very least, we got to meet each other, and that it was it was wonderful. So I'm glad you're back. Yeah, glad to be back with you. And like I said at the time, I have done the exact same thing before, so. <laughs> I want to judge. <laughs> right. Well, let's. Let, I guess let's start off with the reflections from that uh, episode that we did with you, Max. That was not recorded because there was a lot of good stuff on there that I think that we can uh, share with our audience. We're not going to do word verbatim here, but there were points of discussion that I had saved for myself, and I'm sure uh, Jess and Andy had as well that we would like to re uh, just. Uh, just reflect on and reshare with everyone else here. And it might be redundant for us, but it isn't for the audience because they, they, they missed out. So um, I guess we'll start off with, just tell us about yourself, Max. Maybe that's a good place to start. Okay, sure. Um, well, we already met, but for the listeners who haven't met me, um, my name is Max Wilbert and... I am a child of the Pacific Northwest. I grew up in Seattle and have spent most of my life in Washington and Oregon. Um, I lived in Salt Lake City for a couple years and 
I grew up in a pretty politically active and aware family. So that uh, propelled me into activism of various sorts at a pretty young age. Um, I, I grew up politically in the post-WTO Seattle. And at that time, there was this really interesting political mixture going on in the culture um, of, we talked about this last time, the labor movement and the indigenous solidarity movement and environmental movement and, uh, you know, people critiquing corporate power and working for direct democracy and more uh, equal forms of power. Um, all these different movements really collaborating together, seeing in the juggernaut of corporate globalization, um, a unifying force in a way that um, that brings together all those negative elements um, and is uh, causing a lot of destruction around the world. So that's what I grew up with. And I think that was a really um, great situation to to come of age in politically, to be in some of these meetings at a young age and just get exposed to people from a lot of different backgrounds, talking from their own perspectives and working to collaborate towards some shared goals. Um, I got involved in environmentalism pretty young. Uh, I told the story last episode uh, about how I had a crush on this girl and went with her to a... Um, environmental fair and ended up riding on a biodiesel powered Hummer and had a very mixed reaction to that feeling like this is, you know, at the time, I think, um, this must've been 2000. It was after the invasion of Iraq and Afghanistan had been a few years before that, obviously. So, um, so the wars were raging and, you know, the, and the Hummer was a symbol of cons conspicuous consumption and war and oil and energy use and so on. So, um, so that was probably the first personal experience I had where I thought to myself, this is being talked about as if it's green, as if it's good for the planet, but it doesn't seem that way. <laughs> this seems like um, a rebranding of... Uh, you know, sort of window dressing on the fundamentally destructive um, process of creating a car like this, shipping it across the world, uh, doing all the mining associated with it, fueling it, you know, all of it. Um, so, yeah, I got involved in, in environmentalism and spent a few years doing a lot of personal change, inward focused stuff, um, changing my lifestyle, um, changing my consumption habits, how I, my diet, all these different things, um, which I think are very important, but also pretty isolating and sort of a, a default mode of engagement within consumeristic, individualistic American society, where I think a lot of places around the world that aren't as individualistic as the U.S., People would be like, yeah, sure, of course, do those things. But like, that's not, that's not political organizing. That's not like building power. That's not working to change the society. Um, it's just sort of like a, um, a scaffolding, an individual scaffolding. Um, so I got very depressed because that didn't work to change the whole world. Um, I was trying to convince everyone to be vegetarian and it didn't work. Um, I wasn't good enough at, uh, at, at debate and 
and um, expository writing that I convinced everyone to change. So, um, so I got depressed for a while. And then it wasn't until I got exposed to a more radical analysis when I was in my early 20s that um, I started to feel a sense of hope and agency again and started to feel like there are things we can do. Um, but it, it, it is going to depend on taking some of the more radical analysis that I think comes out of like, uh, revolutionary and liberation struggles around the world and bringing that into the environmental movement, sort of merging those struggles in some ways. And, um, and so, yeah, that's the work I've been doing for over a decade now. Uh, I just turned 35. So going on 15 years and that led me to um, write a bunch of essays, write a book, get involved in podcasting, community organizing, um, a bunch of different campaigns over the years, some direct action, um, different stuff like that. And, and of course, led me to the subject of this conversation today, which is Thacker Pass. I, th I thought it was important to kind of like highlight, since we had this great conversation, to share with our audience some of the highlights for us. Um, and what I remember and what was so meaningful in, in, in our first discussion, Max, were two things. One is, um, and I, look, I, I don't, I'm not going to be judgmental. I'm going to try not to be judgmental here as a person who comes from the left. Our whole reason for starting What's Left was because we thought the left was like, was messed up. And we're like, what's, what are we going to do? And I, and I see you as coming from that tradition, but most people I have met on the left, as much as I respect them, there's always just this kind of arrogance that comes with people on the left of thinking we, I know something you don't like, and I still really respect some of those folks, or many of those folks, but it's always struck me as like, why is that there? Like, this is not what we're trying to do. And it was so refreshing, Max, you have none of that. I mean, like you just come off as like a very humble person, which is, that's what it, I would imagine a person who does this kind of work would be like, because you're getting humbled all the time by this stuff. And, and you're learning so many different things all the time about what you don't know, just from other people that you thought you knew, but you didn't know. And so honestly, that was just refreshing just to, from the jump to get that experience of you. Um, it just built for me, just an immense amount of trust, honestly, and only in a short period of time, because I just don't see that as for many people. Who are, who are coming from the left side of fighting this fighting this battle? Mm. That's the first thing. Um, the second thing was <laughs> I didn't expect to hear about Marx and Lenin from you, um, mm. and and I love the way you talked about Marx. Is like, look, you don't have to be a Marxist, but if you're if you think that capitalism is a problem, you're going to probably want to read something about what he wrote about it. You're going to probably want to know something because. He's a seminal person in, in, in evaluating what this system, this capitalist system is. Um, and even the quote I thought you made of Lenin, which was the one that I, was meaningful to me. There's a few that for me are really meaningful, but the one you mentioned, which is sometimes there isn't a amount like, I can't remember exactly what the, uh, there, it can take years to make weeks of change and weeks to make years of change, you know, mm -hmm. speaking about how how unexpected and how fast history can come. And he's talking about the, pro the possibility of revolution. That has always held out for me, the notion, like, because as a person who does jujitsu and who is wrestling, grinding it out is something I'm used to. And organizing is a grind. And that notion of knowing that 
there can be moments when it's not a grind, when things move very quickly. I hold out that hope all the time. And so it was just refreshing to, 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 to get that from somebody I didn't expect. So that was, those were some of the highlights for me. Um, and just re remembered also about the WTO stuff, which is uh, the origins of much of my activism as well. Thanks for sharing that, Andrew. Do you want me to respond to that a little bit? If there is anything that comes up, otherwise, we'll, but. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I would just say real quick that um, I, I didn't really read any Marxist stuff until I was until probably just a couple years ago. And I've been, um, I've been critical of it because my experience with Marxists and socialists had been a lot of that arrogance that you were talking about. And I mean, I've got my own arrogance too. Like I've got an ego. We all do, you know, to some extent. And, um, but it's something that I try to keep in check. And one of the ways is like by reading kind of broadly and studying other traditions and being like, look, I, I may not agree with some of the fundamental premises of this or some of the ways it's been carried out or whatever different things. Um, but what can I learn from it? And that's like, I mean, I read like weird business, you know, business books and like stuff like that sometimes because I'm like, you know, there you can critique what modern industrial capitalism has created. It's creating a hellscape on earth. Um, and at the same time, you cannot deny that it is doing so very efficiently and like uh, uh, really like mobilizing people's creative genius in service of often bad things ultimately um but um but there's there's a lot of intelligence being applied there and um you know that's the same way i feel about like lenin and 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 marx and people like that like a lot of people look at someone like lenin as a total monster and you know i'm not well versed enough in history to have any of that debate personally at all um but um, but you can't deny that like those ideas have had a huge impact throughout history and that there's probably some really smart stuff in there. Just like, you know, this country was based on genocide and, and slavery and land theft. And yet like, it's probably a good idea to read the constitution and read about like the founding of this country and the battles between like monarchic power in, in England and this new rising mercantile class. But like, sort of the rising of democracy as a concept like there's some good there's a few good ideas that have come out of that even though you know by and large we can say that there a lot of bad came out of that too um so yeah i think it's worthwhile to just try and read and learn from other people and other traditions and not be so dogmatic that you're like you know you're dead to me <laughs> you know i could never touch this type of material you know like I would even advocate, you know, maybe I'm crazy to say this, maybe people will attack me, but like, you know, I would even advocate like that people study the literature of really horrible regimes and stuff like the Nazis or like Pinochet's Chile. Like it's, we need to understand these things and like how they played out and why things went the way they did. And like so many intellectuals and thinkers have applied themselves to studying those things. But yet um, that often gets left like to academics and to college professors and stuff and, and normal people. And 
community activists don't like don't um don't read broadly so yeah i think that's important that's a very generous um characterization of college professors (laughs) as a a college professor myself i will tell you like i have gotten to the point where every single syllabi that i create i have to put a line in there that says to read something is not to endorse Mm. the ideas in that text because i think the culture is especially in recent years it seems like there's just this i don't know it's like a very narrow sort of cancellation culture of like i don't want to read anything that i could, might potentially disagree with um and i think yeah it would be wise to to heed that approach of just being open to reading what you don't know um and it may end up solidifying your former beliefs and that's great or it might open your mind to something new yeah Eduardo, yeah. do you want to jump in or do you want me to yeah start? I wanted to talk I want you know your uh our connection or or coming to this with you uh Max was Jess's uh um, suggestion and we already covered her her how she came about this but you uh, also are the co-author of Bright Green Lies how the environmental movement lost its way and what we can do about it with Derek Jensen and Leo Keith and in this book you like have a different very different view on and the environmentalist movement and i don't know if you can say more about this and your book because i think that especially within the left you you find your way you find that you get into a niche and then suddenly you have to align everything with this sort of belief or this dogma and if you are not within this uh lane or you do not speak the same talking points then suddenly you are not a part of the movement and which is what we're seeing here with the factor pass now and so i'm not sure if you can just Share a bit about that as well. Sure. Yeah. Well, I, um, I, my roots as an environmentalism were like an old school, came out of it, this old school environmentalism, which very much looked at things like consumption and critiqued advertising and the, like the creation of artificial desires for new products in the population and the manipulation of people's minds. And, um, you know, and this has been so well documented. Like right now, I know Nestle is going into like the Amazon and the Sahel and these remote portions of the world and like actively trying to get people hooked on sugary corn syrup, you know, candy food, you know, quote unquote foods. And they're doing that deliberately to like expand into new markets and grow. And, um, you know, that may not be killing people as directly as like a bullet to your body, but that's killing people like that is predatory behavior. Right. And, um, and so, uh, I guess I had this more, I would say rooted, I might go inside because it sounds like the neighbors are doing their dirt bikes. Um, this more rooted environmentalism rooted in like some of those old school ethics of um of trying to make do with less and like trying to consume less and trying to um trying to (laughs) 
like build an alternative and live an alternative to modern industrial capitalism, you know, and consumeristic American society. And um, so I think I was already kind of predisposed to question some of the narratives that began to really grow pretty strong starting like when I was in high school in the early 2000s. Um, and that narrative was around technology being the savior and around uh, new energy technologies, new green technologies like solar and wind and electric vehicles and energy efficiency and vertical farming and um, all these different things to allow continued industrial growth of society using the same paradigm basically that has existed in the past, but making it sustainable, like taking the same structure, the same superstructure of society and like retrofitting it so that it's not causing global warming so that it's, you know, not using as much water so that it's uh, being kinder to the soil, these different things. And I was already predisposed to question that. I think just because um, I understood, I already knew how much media lies to us, like how easy it is to manipulate public opinion about these types of issues by, um, you know, running ad campaigns and, uh, you know, viral marketing and undercover, uh, like product placement and all these different types of things um, that are happening all the time all around us. I started to see that really creep into the environmental movement too. I started to see environmentalists partnering more and more with businesses. And I know this began before this. It really picked up steam, I think, in the late 80s and going into the 90s. But the 2000s was when it it really started to um, become mainstream for that to happen. And then, you know, the, the 2010s, it like just skyrocketed, went exponential. And now that's like everywhere in our society that, you know, you go buy a thing of coke at the store i don't drink coke but i see it you know and it's like got a little eco-friendly label on it and it's like this is made from da 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 recycled plastic and like every, almost every product is advertising its environmental credentials in one way or another and the point of course is not that those credentials are real like in many cases they're not significantly different than the products were before but um, but now they're just advertising it. They're using it as a selling point. So like a good example of this is Costa Rica, where Costa Rica has uh, gotten most of their electricity from dams for decades, for as long as they've had electricity. And, um, and recently, like over the past 10, 15 years, they've started to um, advertise basically how Costa Rica gets all of their power from green energy because dams are sustainable and supposedly they don't emit carbon. Um, but of course, that's not true. Dams, in especially in the tropics, emit a ton of carbon um, because the, the reservoirs like trap all the organic material behind them and it, it basically rots in the bottom of the reservoir and produces a ton of methane, which is a more powerful greenhouse gas than, than carbon dioxide. So um, reservoirs behind dams are a significant source of greenhouse gases on a global scale. Um, but uh, so this green, I started to see this greenwashing coming and I still kind of 
you know, felt like, well, solar and wind may be a little bit better than, than, than fossil fuels and what came before. But then I just started to research more and more. I started to learn about peak oil. I started to study the environmental impact of green technologies, like in detail, looking into supply chains and production and where they actually come from. Um, and it's pretty nasty. <laughs> so I ended up writing this book with uh, Derek Jensen and Lear Keith. And in Bright Green Lies, we basically go through all these different technologies one by one. And we talk about where do the raw materials come from? What sort of extraction is involved? What sort of processing is involved? Um, is there pollution? You know, what type of pollution is created? Where is this taking place? Often it's in, you know, the global South and poor countries. Often it's in, you know, rural communities or, um, you know, traditional indigenous territories. Um, you know, often it is spreading into um, wildlife preserves and natural areas that are now being sacrificed for this new green development. Um, and it doesn't seem to be making much of a difference in carbon emissions. Carbon emissions are still going up. They're the highest level they've ever been in human history, and they're rising. <laughs> And that's despite, you know, more and more wind and solar coming online, more and more electric vehicles getting used, more and more investment in these different um, things. And in part, that's because the whole system's based on growth, right? And it's trying to overcome inertia. But in part, it's also because these technologies are completely dependent on fossil fuels. Um, Ozzy Zayner, who's an engineer, calls them alternative fossil fuels rather than alternative energies. Because you can't make a solar panel or a wind turbine or an EV or uh, a hydroelectric dam or a geothermal power plant or any of these technologies without fossil fuels right now. So they're an extension of the fossil fuel powered energy system. And um, so the book goes into a lot more than that. I can't really summarize it that that quick. It's a pretty lengthy book. But um, but basically, it comes from an environmental perspective, from the perspective of, of people who are really concerned about global warming, about species extinction, about human rights, uh, biodiversity, uh, you know, soils, water health, all these different things, and who see these technologies as being false solutions, as, as things that are leading us in the wrong direction. Um, and that's why the subtitle for the book is... Um, how the environmental movement lost its way and what we can do about it. Because we really feel like this whole alternative energy technology thing is a straying off course. It's like a, it's a, it, it, we've taken a wrong turn and it's not leading us where we need to be going. It's leading us away from where we need to be going. And, um, and we wanted to just expose that and get the word out there and get people talking about it because I think really what we're seeing with green technology is the co-opting of an entire movement. You know, the environmental movement used to understand that, uh, you know, logging is connected to warfare and imperialism and that global warming is deeply connected to, to capitalism and the, the, the plight of workers around the world. And that um, all of these issues are deeply interlinked that, you know, overpopulation 
is an environmental issue and it's an issue of patriarchy and feminism and that um that these struggles like making progress in these areas means addressing some of the power structures that we have in our society means fundamental even revolutionary change in our political structures our power systems of power our institutions um uh and that that is a pol- an inherently political project whereas now the environmental movement that has been mainstreamed into this almost business like entity is all about getting government subsidies and getting public money to private corporations so they can build more energy production facilities more transmission lines more electric vehicles and so on so it's almost like this whole movement has been co-opted from being a grassroots oppositional movement rooted in like human rights and justice and sustainability um, that saw itself as actively fighting back against capitalism, industrial civilization, patriarchy, etc., has co-opted that into being like a business arm of a certain sector of the industrial economy. And that is um, that is pretty stunning and I think really um, tragic for the outcomes were happening. So we with the book, we're really hoping to like do a course correction here. Um, I think a lot of the people who are like big wigs, in the mainstream environmental movement aren't aren't going to get it likely at least you know they're not gonna um have an epiphany tomorrow and like change the whole direction of their organization but um but a lot of the people who are just normal folks who are just involved at the grassroots level in these issues who are voting who are um, donating to ngos and stuff like that i think a lot of people have been led astray legitimately by um, the lies that are being repeated, by the misinformation, by, um, you know, the restricted framing that's being put out there. So we were hoping really to reach those people and and inspire more of a shift in the whole movement at a grassroots level from the bottom up. Oh, my God, there's so much to unpack there, Max. And just, yeah, (laughs) you know, you had asked us in the last time that we were together, um, you had asked us about our, our individual uh, backgrounds, right? And I, at that time, I told you that I uh, was of that uh, tradition as well, where the environmentalist movement was more of, well, at least I've, the circles that I hung out with was about sustainability and making sure that we were just completely uh, disconnected from, or that we were going to abolish all these other sort of commercialized ways of greenwashing, which wasn't, at that time, it wasn't greenwashing. It was now that I'm seeing with the Green New Deal and with Tesla and everything, even with the Green Festival here in San Francisco, where all of these speakers, I fostered a child and I used to take him to, and I used to take him to the Green Festival where he, I had him take pictures with all these speakers, Bill McKibben, Amy Goodman, uh, Dolores Huerta, and Paul Stamets. And I remember just wanting to instill these principles in him but over the years, I'd see the Green Festival invite all these corporations. And suddenly it became about tax credits. It became about uh, reducing waste and, and whatever. It was just, just all this criminalization of it. And I thought, what are we doing? It didn't feel to me. And I stopped going after some time, especially after he moved out and did his life independently. But uh, the child I fostered, but it was it didn't feel right anymore to me and it felt as if we were uh we were selling out you know mm-hmm. and so 
being Mexican and in my country where I mentioned last time the Mayan train, which is being built and is destroying lots of uh, jungle uh, forest, there's so much talk by the president about how it's going to be uh, seeing the impacts or trying to mitigate damage or trying to figure out how to do it in a way that's not going to destroy the environment, which is all BS because it's that's not what's happening on the ground. There are bio, uh, biologists and environmentalists right now that are talking about this online, which no one is giving heed to. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I just, there the the what we're giving in to for uh more environment for the environmental movement to be more mainstream is just to make us feel good but really isn't causing us it isn't causing this transformation that we really need you know and i'm just yeah it's frustrating and i don't know i I could say more but i don't want to take up more time i don't know if jess or andy want to come in Yeah, I can pick up. Um, like, there's a few different threads running through my head, and I'll try to tie them all together. But <laughs> yeah, I mean, just like working with mostly like 18 to 22 year olds in my job, and like I'm always because I teach English and like sort of environmental humanities and write about that stuff. I always am kind of interested in the role of like language and rhetoric and, and storytelling. Um, and especially in Seattle, and I think it's it's very similar where you know in Silicon Valley, where Andy and Eduardo are very close to um, that kind of early, and then into the two thousand, you know, second decade of the two thousands. Um, the sort of I call it like solutions porn. Um, but yeah, like in terms of what the solutions to ecological disaster are, yeah. Just the way that the parameters of acceptable discussion and debate are are defined for us, and from such a young age now, like my students have basically grown up. I mean, they're they're all like post nine eleven babies, so they've grown up, um, and especially in places like that. But I think it's it's really becoming all over um, from the get go. It's just so hard for people to kind of pan back and um, recognize that they're basically being offered you know a choice between lesser of two evils you know it's like the shit sandwich that's going to destroy the earth or do you want this shit sandwich that's you know synthetically dyed green right and comes with gmo chips on the side or whatever terrible metaphor but yeah i'm just kind of interested in that question of like how how do we break through those parameters um and like i I think a lot about sort of the role of imagination um, because for me, that's sort of like you can imagine something um, then you can take the first step in trying to create it. Right. And then to pick up on another thread from earlier, cause Max, you were kind of mentioning earlier in your activist or organizing journey, like, like being depressed that people weren't sharing your values or doing, you know, doing what, um, you are doing whether in terms of like personal lifestyle choices or more broadly um i think it's so interesting that like what i see in a lot of my students is they get the sort of false solutions like false hope of that tech as savior and evs as savior and yeah but then they also get this like 
increasingly extreme dose of fear mongering of like mm-hmm. a world's going to end in 10 years. Um, like a really kind of big buzzword the past few years in environmental humanities, like in academia is like climate anxiety mm-hmm. um, and climate depression. Um, and I think it, sometimes I think it kind of gets twisted and like weaponized, but I, I do see it. Like, I think it's a real thing for sure among all sorts of different people who care about the environment and then even young people who are just not even necessarily like invested in that particular struggle but who are just growing up being told like you shouldn't have kids because like the world you know it's apocalypse (laughs) right um and I think like just to kind of tie back like I never said my reflections on the past on the past conversation but like one thing that I mentioned I really like about your writing Max and then like one of my favorite kind of parts of our previous conversation was just kind of hearing you talk about like going to Thacker Pass initially mm. and like just describing like what what your own experience of the land was like and like what animals did you discover lived there and what you know how did it look during sunrise and sunset and just stuff like that because I think for me I mean obviously there's a place for mental health and all of that kind of stuff when it comes to climate anxiety or like activist fatigue. But I think for me, like the most fundamental seedling for a solution to both the broad problems, like ecological problems and in terms of our own well-being, is like the magic of our planet right and like getting to experience that like I always I love that I know it's like overquoted, but I love that um Aldo Leopold quote about like we can only be what is it you probably know we we can only be ethical in in relation to something that we can see and and understand and love right and and have faith in um and we can't be everywhere at once but I think you know oftentimes like the best remedy for ecologically related anxiety or depression is literally nature like just going outside um and then you know in some cases taking it a step further like you did and like let's go camp out and and try to save this this particular place that we care about and that is also kind of a microcosm for this larger struggle mm-hmm. um so just i don't know i mean that's what i try to come back to myself when i get depressed and frustrated is just like the magic of whatever the bees in my garden um and trying to instill that in my students like whether we're reading texts or talking about sort of strategies or talking about solutions um to actually like anchor it there because I think it just gets lost and sort of displaced a lot of times in these discussions about political policy and um yeah oh my gosh I have to close my window there's a lot of wind coming in okay I'll stop there yeah Yeah. Thanks, Jessica. That makes a lot of sense. And I enjoyed that part of the conversation too. I was glad you pointed that out last time because that to me is so such an important part of all this is that it's so easy to get wrapped up. Like the corporations and the government, they want us to operate from this hyper-scientific, hyper-rational perspective all the time um, because they have dominance in that area like they have the money to pay all the experts. They have all the PhDs. They have like massive research institutions to work on all these these different things. Um, they they dominate that arena. And 
you, you know, you look at like an environmental impact statement process for like the Thacker Pass lithium mine, and it's like thousands of pages of technical documentation, like geology, hydrology, biology, you know, all these wildlife studies, cultural studies, like thousands of pages of archaeological uh, findings, you know, all laid out in this particular fashion. And like bureaucracy is weaponized by governments and corporations against people. And I think you can't, it's one of those cases where like some, some, sometimes it's often important to fight in that realm too, to like try and meet them at that level and, and stonewall them. But, um, but like the legal system, for example, is just so stacked against you know, environmentalists against tribes, against in, anyone who's fighting these type of projects that you, even if you have the best evidence and the best experts and you assemble all the data and like, it makes total sense at a rational level, the law still says like mining is the best use of public land. And so there's very little discretion for the agencies, even if there is somebody with a good heart in a decision-making uh, position in these agencies they have very little decision-making power. Like if they deny the permit for these mines, the mine will likely sue the federal government <laughs> and they'll likely win that lawsuit if, you know, unless there are, you know, certain cases where they can get away with denial and uh, denying permits. And, you know, often that is a political process too. Like when I lived in Bellingham, Washington, this company tried to come in and build a giant coal export terminal there. Um, for big giant ships to come in and load up with coal and take it across the ocean. And people fought and stopped it. And it took place across all these different levels. Like you had grassroots community organizing, but also you had like the city council and the county council and these different institutions within the state, like the Department of Environmental Quality or whatever, who were on board because they were forced to be in some cases because of either personal inclination and politics or they were forced to be by overwhelming public opposition and like collectively that was enough to stop that project from going forward um, but that was the case in a very specific context of like a very progressive place uh the actually bellingham the first city in the country to pass a, a global warming um, plan at the city level back in the um, early 2000s at some point. And, uh, you know, and that's just not the case in like Alberta or Idaho or uh, Nevada or like these more rural, more conservative places where a lot of resource extraction has gone on for generations and supported supported a lot of working class people at some level <laughs> of subsistence. Um, so that that doesn't always work. And, um, and what I was going to say to address your point, Jessica, is that uh, I think it's so important to like reach people emotionally, you know, and reach people at a different level. That's not just rational and it's not just science and numbers, but it's magic. You know, it's like the reality of here we are on this planet and like life is a fucking miracle, you know, regardless of your uh, views on religion or or wherever all this came from like it's a miracle it is absolutely incredible like life and biodiversity and um and you know how all this these processes play out um the sunrises and the sunsets and the erosion that forms these valleys and mountains and tectonic plates and 
you know, biodiversity that produces like ants and cougars and human beings and redwood trees and sagebrush and uh, worms and rattlesnakes and like all these multitude of creatures that um, that were related, who were related to, you know, who we share genes with, who we come from the same family. And like that, again, regardless of your religious views, like we are of this planet, right? All life on this planet. Um, in Bright Green Lies, we quoted an, an author um, who said, life is a disperse of rock. So in other words, like the planet was was formed according to what we hear from scientists was just a ball of rock, right? And like various chemical geological processes played out and like that some of that rock like got up and started walking around you know like we're literally made up of the planet's substance and that same is true of all the life that's around us as well and even if you just if you just believe in science like life is a miracle and it's incredibly beautiful and and uh so sort of unlikely and crazy in all these different ways. And I think it's good to, to, to talk about that and try and embody that and like snap people out of it. Because the way I think of it too, is like, we were talking about capitalism, Andy. And I think one of the ways that capitalism destroys, um, destroys people, not just capitalism. This is also true under feudalism and a lot of different, types of societies, I think. Um, but, you know, speaking from my experience living in capitalism, um, one of the ways it destroys people is like by destroying people's sense of magic, destroying people's sense of like, um, of, of like joy and, and wonder in the everyday. And that, that, um, that's a very unnatural way for human beings to live like to get up and hear your alarm clock and be like, fuck, I got to go to work again, you know, and like go in and have your crappy, you know, breakfast made of like destroyed soils on the Great Plains and destroyed aquifers and factory farm milk and stuff. And then like go to your crappy job where you, you hate your life and like go home and do it all over again. Like that is such a dehumanizing experience. And, um, and so the way I think of it personally is that like part of my personal resistance to capitalism, to the dominant culture, industrial civilization, patriarchy, all these sort of forces which have both physical, like material, economic, and like spiritual and ideological manifestations within us, you know, they're like existing outside of us as systems, but they're also taught to us and like shape our worldview and the way our minds think and our neural connections and all these different things is like part of my resistance is we have to like shed that we have to like tear off that crust from inside our own brains and see the world as it actually is you know not as like this mechanistic um this mechanistic like ball of resources for us to extract things from to like temporarily have a little bit of superficial pleasure until we die but as like this beautiful symphony of life that we can participate in that we're 
related to, that we are embedded in, that we're in relationship with every day in all these different ways. And, um, and so, yeah, I, I often think of that too. Like this culture destroys joy. It destroys beauty. It destroys laughter. It destroys all these different things. And like all that stuff still flourishes and like bubbles up and like comes out in so many different ways but it's not like because it's actively encouraged much you know it's like in spite of the culture rather than because of it by and large and so you know i think it's and so often like what art and creativity and like appreciation of aesthetic beauty and all these different things that is out there it's so often divorced from political reality too like you know i've heard some artist friends talk about like how i don't know this history so i may just be completely making this up but about how like the cia was involved during the cold war and funding certain artistic movements because they were apolitical because they were like weren't critiquing um capitalism and certain social forms of organization and and war and imperialism and different things like that i don't know if that's true or not that's something my friend said years ago and i was like yeah that kind of makes sense that they would do that um because like art is powerful and poetry is powerful and like it changes people's hearts you know and and that's why i think you look at some of the most powerful social movements throughout history, whether it's like the civil rights movement and it links in the Harlem Renaissance and like music and jazz and art and this flourishing of culture and creativity, or it's like, you know, the Zapatistas, which we talked about last time, Eduardo, and like how much that was linked to, uh, to like all this incredible art and like the resurgence and celebration of like these traditional peoples in in Mexico and like their, their garb and their culture and their ways and their tradition of relationship to the land. And, um, and, or whether it's, you know, I don't know, all these different movements, like the, the, the Irish independence struggles, you know, and that it's links to like the Gaelic revival and the, the flourishing of like the, 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 the language coming back, art coming back, like a real cultural revitalization. Um, I think those those things often don't get linked as much as they should. And I think um, like some artists don't don't don't, I think, like um, go far enough in their in their politics or like take that seriously. They get sucked down this sort of capitalistic, uh, not even capitalistic artistic rabbit hole because, I do believe that like art shouldn't have to be political. Like art can just be for its own sake and be for the sake of beauty. Like, and it should be for that sake. Most of the time, you know, it's only because we're in this crappy situation that like it ends up being that way. But, um, but, or it's like, I think there are a lot of activists and, and political people who just don't take that stuff seriously. And they're just like, that's oh, a waste of time. And, you know, we got to focus on the struggle. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I've fallen into that myself in the past, but it's like, we're human beings and we have to, you know, we have to, um, we have to live and like when, 
the systems that we're living under are destroying like beauty and destroying like our soul, <laughs> you know, at the internal level, like that's, that's a whole nother level of colonization. You know, it's like one thing to have your land colonized, to have um, your political structures taken over, dismantled, all these different things. But now we're in this like late stage capitalism situation where the frontiers of colonization are like inside the body, inside the psyche, you know, inside the mind and the soul. And so you have like Tinder and Bumble and all these different apps and stuff that are like monetizing and tracking like all your, all the things around love and romance and attraction and sexuality and like, and porn, you know, like, like capitalizing that that thing it's really like an enclosure of the commons type situation but it's like the human heart you know and the same thing with in so all these different areas of anyway i'm just rambling now but that's that's what i do sometimes i've got a big mouth as i've said before well i think that brings us to me it brings us back to backer pass um because for what for for me what's important about the struggle that you are you with your comrades and i think I, I would like to hear it you know if you can an update and anything you wanted to add from our last episode where we talked about essentially the people fighting against the the placement of a the per, creation of a lithium mine in this beautiful silent dark territory dark meaning you know it can be so dark at night you know which is not true in most urban areas um that has a, a, a history to it, um, a history of colonization to it, a history of of the destruction of indigenous societies. Um, and it's not to be a guilt trip, but just to say that that's part of our history and people who were hurt by this are now being doubly hurt by this, this saying, we're going to rip it up, not for you, but for us. Um, and the reason I think it's so important for me is I, I do feel whether we call this late stage capitalism, this 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 place that, that capitalism's at with data collection and artificial intelligence, it it's not just threatening; it is act it is actively taking and saying, "Well, we can have a machine produce art. We can have a machine do what you just did. We can have a machine teach what you just taught," um, and and trying to sell us that like that's a somehow a good thing, and it's literally stripping us of humanity, and we don't even necessarily know it. I, and 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 we're actually some of us are agreeing to it out of a notion of efficiency, and the the process of doing that, lithium is going to figure, is one of one of the resources that is going to figure prominently in that because it's going to be about batteries, and they say it's going to be about batteries because they need something to per, to to make their machines move autonomously, and you know because the the the, the things they relied on before were laborers and workers that had blood blood pumping through them, and now they they want not chemically powered or not the chemical of CO2 and um, ATP, you know, cleavage and things like that, but the, but battery production, which is lithium and ions and things like that. And, and they plan on replacing us, you know, uh, and, and, and they're going to, and so these people who are fighting this and you're one of them are saying, no, we're not, we don't accept this future, you know, and we're going to stop you from doing this or we're, we're willing to try to do that. and. I feel like it's it's just a very important struggle um, in terms of 
to highlight what we all must be doing. Um, I and I am definitely of the mind as a person, as a, as a teacher who's watching AI being talked about as something that's going to be individually teaching students. And now AI is actually being used to evaluate the teaching of teachers so that they can get the AI to collect the data of all the, the media. Like we are, we're basically supposed to produce video and then have the AI tell us what a master teacher used to tell us. Now the AI is going to tell us, what were you doing wrong with that student? As it essentially reads my actions, reads the response of the students and learns from that. I'm, it's literally the accelerating my replacement and accelerating um, the machine coming in on the, on the educational process. So there's something to be stopped there as well. Um, and, and so we all have fronts upon which we have to fight this. And so I guess I'm wondering, where do you feel like things are at with regards to Thacker Pass and that struggle? Um, and maybe if there's anything that you thought from our last episode, if there's anything that you thought we didn't quite touch on that you can bring to this as well. Yeah, well, um, so the, the Thacker Pass fight continues, which is amazing to me because there have been a lot of times, honestly, where I've felt defeated in this process. Like there have been some some uh, some grim times throughout this because, you know, it's big power that we're, we've set ourselves against at Thacker Pass, like this multi-billion dollar corporation. Now they're supported by General Motors, who's agreed to buy all the lithium that they produce, biggest car manufacturer in North America. Um, then you've got the federal government completely on their side, um, providing funding, providing a massive loan to them with very favorable conditions, which probably amounts to like a multi-billion dollar subsidy. Um, and then you've got the state government and the county government who are also lined up behind the project. So uh, it's there have been a lot of times that I felt like it was over, but amazingly, it it just continues. And it continues because people are uh, sacrificing and doing the work to make it happen. Um, so the latest happenings are that um, we've sort of moved into a whole new phase. There was the first phase of the campaign was the protest camp that we set up that was in place there for most of 2021. Um, and I was there for that entire year. And uh, the second phase was the lawsuit. So there were multiple lawsuits filed by uh, three Native American tribes, um, uh, four environmental organizations, and one local rancher. Those lawsuits concluded in January of this year. And the judge basically rejected all the arguments in those lawsuits. Um, the protest camp that we set up got shut down because um, of threats being made against us. The federal government fined us almost $50,000, which we're still fighting right now. We haven't had to pay that yet, but um, that's in progress. That's a whole other battle behind the scenes. Um, and, you know, sort of a strategic measure as well. Like the lawsuits were taking front and center stage at that point. With winter setting in, numbers dwindling at the camp, we decided to close it down. So what's happened since January is first, uh, the environmental groups appealed their lawsuit to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. They're almost certainly going to lose. It's just another one of those situations where the laws really suck. 
They were written in favor of corporations. The law that governs mining in the United States on public land was written in 1872 and has barely changed since then. Um, Ulysses S. Grant was president at the time. <laughs> he signed this law. So um, to say that it is backwards and outdated and anti-environmental would be the understatement of more than a century because it's it's 150 years since that happened. Um, the uh, three tribes filed a new lawsuit. They didn't appeal the original lawsuit that they lost, but they actually filed a new lawsuit bringing new arguments in federal district court in Reno. Um, that lawsuit is ongoing. I don't think the prospects for that are very good either because same with the environmental laws, the cultural protection laws around um, sacred sites and burial sites and um, culturally significant areas and so on are just not strong at all in this country. Um, but the third prong, which is most interesting to me as a non-lawyer, as a grassroots activist, is that um, direct action has picked up. So on April 25th, um, a, a group of people, including myself, um, led by some Native American elders from the uh, Fort McDermott Paiute Shoshone tribe and the Pyramid Lake Paiute tribe, um, went to the site and held a prayer on the site, blocking a road and shut down construction for the whole day. Um, that was just one day. But then on May 11th, um, another group went out. I was also there and set up a teepee blocking the water pipeline for the project. And that that was May 11th. We're recording this on May 21st. Um, so it's been uh, a week and a half. And that teepee is still in place. A second teepee got set up at a different location along the water pipeline route. Um, people have been coming in and out of the camp visiting. Um, uh, joining in the prayer, joining in the ongoing ceremony, um, and standing against the destruction of this place. Um, it's it's very powerful symbolically because the people who are leading this are direct descendants of a man named Oxam. Oxam was one of the only survivors of an 1865 massacre of Paiute people that was committed by the U.S. Army. So on September 12th, 1865, these soldiers were camped across from Thacker Pass. They saw campfires in the early morning, and they rode across the valley, rode their horses, um, heading west towards Thacker Pass, and they attacked a, a camp of Paiute men, women, children, elders, um, and they killed almost all of them. Um, surprise attack. They killed almost all of them, dozens um, possibly as many as 50, possibly more. Um, the numbers are are unclear. Um, but this man, Ak, Ak Sam, was a young man at the time, and he jumped on a horse and, and escaped. And as he escaped, he headed west, right along the route that right now this water pipeline is being constructed. And so now, uh, 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 you know, a hundred and 30 years later, his, um, or 170 years later, my math is bad, um, his direct descendants have set up camp 
on the route, like right where he fled from that massacre. His whole family was killed in that massacre. So also the ancestors of these people were killed running along this path, running in this area right there. And now his direct descendants have set up camp there and said, you can't continue to destroy and desecrate our ancestors' resting place like this. This is a sacred place to us. And we're not going to allow this. And so they've asked these elders and spiritual leaders have asked for people to come out and join them, come out and support them, um, to come out to the camp, whether it's for a day or a week or longer. And um, I was on site for the first couple of days. And then I got some legal threats from Lithium Nevada um, targeting me specifically, um, which, of course, they want. They want me to be the leader. They always want like a clear leadership structure so that they can target one person or a couple people. Um, but I'm just not the leader of this. I'm, you know, I I was there and I was in support, but I'm not the leader. <laughs> and um, so I I was able to leave and um, and am supporting from here how I can, helping spread the word. And um, that camp is in place. It's strong. It's powerful. The word is going out. Um, a lot of the network that was built for Standing Rock is starting to be activated and, uh, and people are converging on this site. And more broadly, I think this is helping to educate people that this green technology issue is not as simple as it has been sold to us. It's not as easy as we'll just switch to electric vehicles and solar and wind and everything will be fine. Um, it's just not true. You know, the the Department of Energy, I think, estimates that there will need to be 42 times as much lithium production to meet electric vehicle demand, like by 2050 or something like that. I'm not exactly sure of the, the target date. Um, but that's, you know, that's 42 lithium mines for everyone that's, uh, that's happening now. And um, there's one in the United States, one active lithium mine in the United States. So that's, opening 42 new significant open pit mines, um, largely open pit mines or lithium brine extraction facilities within uh, a matter of, you know, a decade or two. And that scale of resource extraction and heavy industrial activity necessarily involves uh, destruction of habitat, destruction of biodiversity, killing of all kinds of wildlife um, and harming and impacting human communities in all these different ways, whether it's directly through pollution or displacement or through, you know, an increase in workers, which can lead to all kinds of um, issues at times with uh, drugs, violence, you know, missing and murdered indigenous women and non-indigenous women, um, uh, as well as impacts on historical and cultural and, and spiritually important sites. And that's what's happening now, not just at Thacker Pass, but all over the country, all over the world. There's a planned lithium mine in Arizona on three sides of a sacred spring to the Wallapai people. There's planned uh, increases in lithium extraction in the Imperial Valley in Southern California around the Salton Sea, um, which is a very culturally significant area to the indigenous peoples of that that land, um, one of the elders, Preston Arrowweed, has been fighting that, um, leading the fight for many years. Um, there's planned lithium mining in the Black Hills 
um, which is beginning to go forward from what I understand because there's very little regulation on mining in that area. And, uh, you know, that's one of the most sacred places in the world, not just for the Lakota, but I think for a lot of the different tribes that have moved through and used those areas throughout the centuries and millennia. Um, and that's just the beginning. That's not even getting into, you know, the copper, whether you're talking about Oak Flat and the situation there, that's not even getting into the nickel, um, the situation in Indonesia with lithium or with nickel mining, where most of the world's nickel comes from is absolutely atrocious. Um, cobalt, and we all have heard about the child labor and slavery, essentially, that's happening in the Congo around cobalt production. Um, and even the more common minerals that are required for these technologies like iron ore and steel production, you know, the biggest iron ore mine, which I researched for Bright Green Lies is in the Amazon rainforest. And it's uh, thousands of square miles have been deforested to uh, make room for the mining to happen, but also to produce charcoal for smelting the ore. And, you know, the new green thing is that the mining industry is now saying, um, in some cases, we're no longer going to use fossil fuels to smelt our ore. We're going to use um, a green form of charcoal instead, by which they basically mean cutting down forests and burning them to smelt the charcoal out, mm. which, uh, you know, that gives you a, a sense. It's one of those good examples like Costa Rica that I mentioned earlier, where it's like the yardstick changes. They're doing the exact same thing they've done for many years, but now they're just going to turn around and say it's green because trees have green leaves on them, I guess, before you cut them down and burn them. <laughs> but uh, it's pretty poor logic. But, you know, when you have uh, trillions of dollars spent on advertising around the world globally, you can really manipulate people's opinions in very significant ways. I have a question. And are we going to jump in, Andy? Go ahead. I feel like a lot of people are, I don't know, like there's an inclination to be like, well, what's going to happen? Like, is this eco side going to go forward on a global scale? Like I've even been reading a little bit about um, deep sea mining too, right? Because even if they do all of this horrible shit that you've just described and just take land from every possible group that they can, they still aren't going to have enough for this scale, right? And so they're going to have to, I mean, maybe they already are. Maybe you know more about it than me. But um, I I mean, obviously, you don't have a crystal ball. But I'm curious, Max, like, what would a sort of robust and successful resistance look like in your mind? Like, I'm not saying, like, super rosy like just like way out there but like you've been doing this work you've co-written this book you've helped co-found this protect Thacker pass movement um what like if you could kind of have that scaled up like what would it look like that's a really good question um and i think a question that i wish a lot of people were pondering um because as you mentioned earlier, I think lack of imagination often gets us into trouble. I see a lot of, what I mean by that is I see a lot of activists like focusing on what's politically realistic and what's the most feasible thing that we can do right now and ending up with like very minor reforms as the only thing that they're working on, which, you know, fine. Like 
we need minor reform sometimes. Sometimes that's all you can get. Um, sometimes it's a stepping stone to, to larger changes, but also sometimes it's just a distraction from like what actually needs to happen, which may not be politically feasible. But then the question is, how do we make it politically feasible? And um, so that's, you know, that's one of the things we wanted to do with Thacker Pass is like shift the Overton window of acceptable discussion. Um, and I think we've managed to do that to some extent. Um, so what do I think like a semi-reasonable, semi-achievable um, movement could look like over the next, you know, 10 years um, around these issues? I th I think that for me would look like the mainstreaming of degrowth rhetoric in across politics like the mainstreaming of the idea that not only is climate change an issue but economic growth itself is a big problem and something that needs talk and we need to start seriously talking about uh and developing plans for halting economic growth and contracting the size of global economies um, deliberately, because if that's not done deliberately, the planet is going to do it for us in very nasty ways that none of us are going to like. Like that's what happens when you overshoot carrying capacity, when you draw down resources, when you take more water than is getting recharged naturally, when you change the climate, when you destroy soils, is it like that stuff comes back to bite you eventually. And that looks like um, like breakdown of society, which is already happening in different parts of the world. Like one of my best friends is from Pakistan and she always says like, you want to see what the future is going to be like in this country. Like, look at Pakistan. It's like, you know, all these like religious and sectarian divisions, a lot of internal violence. It's a nuclear armed state, but like the, you know, there's all these ongoing battles between different political parties and the military is sort of the most important institution and powerful institution in the country. You have like increased population growth despite the total collapse of the environment accelerating and greater and greater heat waves and breakdown of agricultural systems with more extreme weather happening. It's just like it's a bad situation, right? And that, um, like that's just a little taste of where I think the world is likely to be headed in the next 50 to a hundred years. And if, if things don't change significantly. Um, so I would like to see uh, the mainstreaming of a degrowth ideology. Like I would like to see, you know, at this point, not even like the green party talks about degrowth seriously, you know? Um, but I think that, you know, all of our, the, the, the two main political parties, especially are like so divorced from reality that, um, the two wings of the corporate party, right. That their plans are just complete nonsense. And what I would like to see over the next 10 years is like a growing grassroots movement that forces, begins to force political change and change shifts the Overton window even further around issues like degrowth, collapse, um, ecological overshoot, and the need to transform the way we live, right? Because I think that um, as things 
become increasingly chaotic and become increasingly difficult on this planet. There are sort of two ways to go. And one is the Trump, Bolsonaro, uh, Erdogan, you know, route of, of authoritarianism and retreating into like a strong father figure, you know, to like take care of business and like crack down on these crazy problems. And a lot of people are going for that. You know, they're retreating into that sort of like patriarchal archetype fantasy of like this strong man who's going to save us rather than um, act. And I think Biden falls into that, uh, that, that trope uh, very clearly as well. Um, And we're not seeing like the alternative. There was a really interesting book that was written a couple years ago. And I actually, it was kind of hard to read. The writing was very academic, um, but it was called, God, it might've been called climate Leviathan. And it was talking about like, they put this quadrant up there and it was like four different possibilities for the future. One of them was like green technology, industrial capitalism, you know, wins, Uber all is like AI power, da, 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 da. The other one was like China becomes the ascendant world power. And we have this sort of socialistic, mega machine authoritarian you know technological development thing that's like not quite capitalist in an american sense but is still similar and like pretty nightmarish um one was like breakdown of society and that's where things can go and the other one the author is called climate x and they talked about that as being largely unknown and sort of grassroots and emerging from people's movements to fight fossil fuel infrastructure and fight um, the destruction of the planet in these different ways and emerging from the grassroots with a real sense of like sustainability, justice, human rights, women's rights, and recognizing that um like top down authoritarian responses to global warming are going to become increasingly attractive to governments and to you know and already are and to big corporations and to the wealthy and to many people who um have been raised in sort of a authoritarian patriarchal power structures and that that road is like, that's kind of the road that we're on. You know, that's like the geoengineering nuclear power road. It's like, um, it's like the hammer, you know, (laughs) it's, it's the hammer response to these, these issues. And that's, that's a grim place, but that's sort of the road that we're on. And I think that, um, um, when I think about hope, and I think about the best outcome for the future, I see people shifting their allegiance from human institutions to the land, to the water, to the beings who are around them, and to their neighbors in some sense too, their human neighbors, and like beginning to organize from the grassroots to challenge Um, corporate power and capitalism and industrial civilization and 
you know, the Zapatistas have been a beautiful example of that. Like there are all these beautiful movements around the world that are examples of that. Um, and I think those movements need to flourish more and more like COVID kind of um, slowed things down in one sense in that arena. Um, there was a rising grassroots mobilization around the world, especially around climate issues for COVID. And a lot of that was shut down just with lockdowns and everything. Um, and it hasn't reemerged in quite the same way. But I don't know, maybe that will end up being a, a good thing in some ways because it it gave some people some time to reflect, I think. And like Fairy Creek, the Fairy Creek movement in, in Canada, the largest mass movement, uh, the most arrest civil disobedience movement in Canadian history to protect old growth forest. Um, you know, not to shut down a pipeline or something like that, although I would support that too, but to stop logging of old growth forests on Vancouver Island in British Columbia. Um, like that to me is incredibly inspiring. It's inspiring to see these grassroots movements in Serbia fighting against a massive Rio Tinto lithium mine there. Um, like huge mobilizations of farmers and environmentalists and average everyday people, you know, and you have these old multi-generational farmers um, saying, you know, I, I, you'll, you'll have to take this land over my dead body. You know, like I will literally fight to protect this land. And um, I think we need, we need that. We need people to shift their allegiance to the land because a lot of these questions become easier once you've done that. It becomes less about like ideology and less about um, what's politically feasible and less about, you know, what's convenient for me to do and more about like, what is my heart really uh, calling me towards? Um, and I guess the last thing I would add is that I think we're very likely to see environmental movements becoming more and more militant and confrontational in the future going forward. Um, you're already seeing that to some extent around the world, um, but I think it's only going to get stronger and stronger. And I think um, there are some predictions that climate refugees, there could be a billion climate refugees by 2050, 1 billion, which, um, basically means total social breakdown um, around large portions of the world. Um, but if you want to talk about like a revolutionary cohort, that's them. Like those are the people, you know, when you've lost everything and you're um, like, you're going to be ready to do some intense things, many of those people. And I think that's something that, you know, even like the U S military and other other big institutions have recognized is like there's a lot of instability coming because of global warming, because of crop failures and all the consequences, excuse me, of environmental devastation. And um, one of the ways that I look at my role and um, and I hope that other people feel this way as well is that um, our job, my job is to try and steer things in the best possible direction going forward. Like I can't control the outcomes on a big scale at all, but like, I'm going to continue to insist that we take um, issues of 
like human rights and feminism and overpopulation and these things very seriously going forward. Like I'm going to insist that we not just like try and sweep these issues under the rug and that we like contend with them seriously. Um, I'm going to try to insist that like we take ideas around biocentrism and connection to the land and shifting our allegiance from machines and the culture to the natural world, which gives us all our life, every sip of water, every bite of food, all our clothing, the shelter we live in, everything depends, comes from the land, comes from the planet. And I'm going to try and insist that that stays in because I see these possibilities for like more and more authoritarianism, rising fascism. Um, I see like all these different challenges, like how, you know, environmentalists um, in the 70s started to bring up overpopulation. And, and then it's a little known story that the Catholic Church actually was the instigator of this whole movement to make any discussion of overpopulation taboo because it's racist. And if you talk about overpopulation, you just hate people who aren't white and you're racist and you're a bigot. There are a few of those people out there who are just like, um, who are terrible human beings and who are racist and who are whatever eugenicists in that sense. But like literally the Catholic church got involved in that and like worked to build that narrative to avoid addressing uh, overpopulation, basically to avoid like women's healthcare and family planning and abortion and contraception spreading more widely across the planet. And, um, and, uh, you know, I, I think there are, there are a lot of these situations where we're trying to like thread the needle, you know, <laughs> we're trying to thread the needle. Like the left is pretty crazy. The right is really crazy. The left is really crazy too. Um, and like, there's so much wild ideology out there and so much like potential for things to go very wrong that we're already seeing play out in different ways, whether it's the authoritarianism or the reliance on technology or, you know, like the, this, there is actually a trend of rising ecofascism, which is like really scary and weird. Um, and like, there are all these landmines and we're trying to thread this needle and it's going to be challenging, but it's also kind of exciting. We got, we got work to do, you know, it's like, we haven't been born in a boring time. <laughs> Although boring sounds really nice. Sometimes I could use a little more boring. <laughs> we, I think we are wrapping up here, Max, but I do want to highlight that at least for me, um, this question of the scientific consensus around SARS-CoV-2, a SARS-CoV-2 based virus, scientific consensus around even particle physics that has produced a CERN cyclotron, you know, particle accelerator and the scientific consensus around uh, Big Bang as something that is the starting of the universe. A lot of that has collapsed for me, as well as a scientific consensus that said that the, the global warming is due to CO2 production. And that has, and I've grown increasingly cynical of, of that particular thread. I don't question that capitalism is destroying the environment, geoengineering, land development, water extraction, all, a whole host, just, just pollution, which when you see what these chemtrails and stuff like that are doing as well, 
And with solar radiation management, the, the so-called solution to global warming, um, they, at least that's what they're saying it is, I personally am coming more into question that, well, I have seen, I feel like this issue of human-made CO2 production is being, has been weaponized and is being, has been really being utilized by the big powers to, to further build public-private partnerships, state and corporate um, uh, associations that are going to use this as the raison d'etre for controlling people, global, you know, climate lockdowns and things like that. And also to monitor the output of humans because CO2 is something that we put out. So just want to note that it's an area that I am increasingly growing skeptical of, even as I share your belief that there's no question that this system is destroying the environment that we live in and destroying the humans that are part of that environment. Um, so it, it is something that maybe we could come back to discuss more later because it, it was I had questions about it a few years ago, and those questions have only grown more since I've gone through this whole COVID stuff. So I wanted to note it here because um, we've talked about this on the show um, and, and and just say that. Um, so just. Yeah, thanks, Andy. And um, as we talked about last time, I don't feel the need to agree with everyone that I talk to on everything. So um, I've I've talked to other people who feel the same way. And it's really interesting to me because the trope about, you know, so-called climate con contrarians or deniers is that they're all funded by the fossil fuel industry. And there is an actual history of that that has come out. And um, and yet you're not the first person I've run into who is skeptical of that and yet wants to defend the planet against um, corporate overreach and um, the sort of industrial civilization capitalism run amok. Um, and I yeah, I, I do disagree. I think it is. I think I've studied the science of global warming pretty extensively and and I do think it is pretty clear that it to me at least that it's human caused in large part that there are these broader natural cycles that are happening but um but that you know production of of co2 largely from fossil fuels but almost equally from destruction of forests destruction of soils and other habitats um has kicked us into a new regime that we're headed into climatically but um, but regardless of that, people can work together even when they have disagreements over the issues that do overlap. And you know, with the other gentleman who I'm thinking of in particular, he um, he still wanted to shut down the fossil fuel industry. He didn't believe that global warming was caused by human beings or that you know something along those lines. I don't know exactly what his beliefs were, but he was very concerned about the destruction of the land, the pollution, the destruction of habitat, the destruction of um, human communities and harm to human communities caused by the fossil fuel industry. And so he still wanted to fight it. And I was like, well, you know, functionally then our disagreement may not have any real outcomes in the real world in terms of the work that we're doing. Um, so we just keep moving forward and we sit down around a fire or have a have a beer or a glass of wine sometime and talk about it. And then we're still friends the next day, ideally. Mm -hmm.
I uh, yeah, and to me, I I I I also think that that CO two is a contribution, uh, but largely for me and my focus as someone who studied permaculture is agriculture, how much runoff there is onto our uh, rivers, uh, pesticides, herbicides, and ultimately people destroying forests because of the need to live, right? And the desire to, and I don't think people want, I don't think the poor people in Brazil destroying the rain, the Amazon are destroying it because they want to destroy it. Like, oh, I'm out there to just maliciously in there just but because of work and the need to survive. And they're working for larger entities that are trying to um, uh, occupy this land that illegally. And anyhow, the, uh, but I, I wanted to discuss speaking of uh, not uh, disagreeing, you the, the, that's something that really struck me around this movement of yours, this direct action at at uh, at Pass. It's and just if you can just help me here, uh, Max, with the indigenous tribes, the ranchers, and the environmentalist movements, how three distinct groups have come together to try to uh, defend this area and. Uh, and this is an area that I I really think, as we were talking about this with Andy just now, this uh, this minute, this 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 piece here, how the importance of even as we have different points of view and disagreements, how can we come together and work together? Yeah. What can you share with us uh, from your experience there? Yeah, well, it's challenging. Um, it's definitely not easy because there are very different cultures, there are very different perspectives, worldviews, values. Um, but at the end of the day, we're all human. You know, we all, we all drink the water. We all eat food. We all have families and loved ones. And so that's the basis, I think, for, um, any discussion, any alliances and collaboration is just the, the basic human humanity that we share. But, um, I think it's important to, to identify issues where you don't agree probably and like deliberately set those aside and understand that the person doesn't agree with you on this thing and that doesn't make them evil or less human or something like that you know and um i think there is a lot about setting aside ego um and being willing to just listen that's a big part of it too. Like it's been my personal experience at Thacker Pass has been um it's it's been relatively easy for me to work with some of the environmentalists because there are some really grassroots biocentric environmentalists who really prioritize the land. They really love the land, they love the other creatures, the wildlife, and they have a worldview that's pretty similar to mine. So that those people have been really easy to work with. Um, some of the environmentalists are, in my opinion, a little bit more, slightly more mainstream, a little bit more um, incorporated into uh, like a mainstream political apparatus, which becomes more challenging for me um, because they're trying to like say the right buzzwords and you know, sort of, they're trying to like act apart kind of, you know, to get political approval and, and, and so on at a broader level, at a state level and so on. And 
that can be challenging for me because um, like for those type of organizations, they may critique this mine, but they're unlikely to challenge mining as a whole, for example. They're, they're more likely to say things like, well, we need mining, but we just need to do it in the most responsible possible way. Or, you know, we need, we need lithium. And, you know, if they're going to develop the Thacker Pass mine, we think it's really important that they follow the law and they do it with the best possible environmental protections. Whereas privately, those same people might say to me, like, yeah, this whole thing's bullshit. There's no way to do it in an environmentally friendly way. And I just say that publicly. Like, I'm just like, I'm going to tell the truth here. You know, it may not be always uh, political. And I can sort of see, I can definitely see why those organizations make those choices, right? They're trying to, they're trying to get a foot in the door of the political system. They're trying to make a difference. And by me telling the truth, like the door gets slammed in my face. And that's just the reality. And so I understand like why people, uh, why people do those kind of things. And to some extent, I respect them for, for like, um, playing the political game and trying to make change within the system as it currently exists. I don't, I don't choose to do that myself. I don't think they're very likely to have much good outcome, but I also see the draw of it and I can see like it has worked in the past for some people to do that kind of thing. You know, there have been major environmental victories and legislative victories that have come through engagement with the system. I won't, I don't know if I'd say my major, I'd say medium size, um, but significant. And so I can see why they do that kind of stuff. So even though I'm not on the same page of them as them, I'm like, I respect your work. You have good values. You have integrity you're trying to do the best you can in a very imperfect world let's uh let's you know let's talk to each other um then you have the tribes and the native folks and um you know tribes are not um uh, homogenous you know native communities they're just as fragmented and as many different opinions as any other community um and uh and yet there is in a lot of tribes, there's like a strong traditionalist uh, movement and, and segment of the population that's still alive. That's still maybe speaking the language, practicing some of their old traditional ways, um, doing things like hunting and gathering and using traditional medicinal foods from the land, doing ceremonies that involve the land in some way or another. And just generally, like if you try and define indigenous I mean, I think you can talk about being indigenous to a place, right? That it, it's about place-based. But I think part of it is also about relationship to the land specifically. Like, you know, there have been, you know, there have been some native tribes that have only been in the area that they've lived in now for a couple hundred years because there's, you know, there's been displacement and migration and stuff. Whereas there have been some Europeans who've been on parts of this continent for you know, 500 plus years at this point, but they're, the native people are very much indigenous and the, the Europeans are very much non-indigenous, you know, so it's not as simple as just like, you've been here for this many generations and you're now indigenous. There's, there's something deeper there and it's, it's hard to put a finger on, or like, maybe we don't need to define that. I don't think we do. It's this more amorphous thing, 
but it's it does involve like relationship to place to me and a rootedness in place it's like um to me it's almost like a sense of not like this land is ours but like we are this lands you know <laughs> like we this we belong to this land and um and uh i you know i don't know there i'm sure there are a lot smarter people than me and indigenous thinkers who've who've written and and talked about this very extensively and much more eloquently than me um so i'm just going off the cuff here <laughs> but um but the point that i'm trying to say is that like there are traditional segments in most indigenous communities and most tribes that are still really connected to to old traditions and to land and to place and to water and and non-human life and like the spirit of the land and those those people are generally pretty easy for me to connect with on a values level um, because i share a lot of those values um, but there's also cultural differences. Like I'm a white man who grew up in Seattle and has a college education and speaks English. And, you know, and I'm talking to like Paiute elders whose first language is Paiute who grew, you know, who went to a boarding school and like live in one of the most remote, isolated and poor reservations in the country. And that's just a big cultural divide there. But at the same time, you know, we're all human. So it's just like, Hey, let's let's sit down together. Let's talk. I'll try and be as respectful as I can and listen and let's share some food and um and just develop a relationship, you know. And um I think when you're trying to organize across cultural differences, whether it's, you know, different race or ethnicity or different cultural background or different class or social position or whatever, all these different things, like it's important that you just do so from a place of authenticity, in my experience. And just be real and just be like, this is who I am, <laughs> you know, and this is what I believe. And this is where I'm at and not like push it on people, but just to be honest and, um, and to just show up as yourself and, and, and own it and own, own who you are and, and try to really listen and understand where other people are coming from. Um, and yeah, so in my experience, there are also native people in the communities who aren't really traditional who maybe are pro mining or more interested in the economic development aspect and those people i find as difficult to connect with as the mining company executives you know um it's just like okay you know well that's that's your value you know maybe we can um connect on a non-political level but you know around this specific organizing effort like we're not we're not there's a big gap here um, but then as you were just saying, Eduardo, there's like the ranchers and the farmers in the local areas. And that's, that community is largely pretty conservative. Um, there's a lot of, um, you know, don't tread on me flags, Trump flags, um, certainly not entirely. Um, there's a pretty big community of Spanish speaking farm workers, but, you know, as is often the case in like rural conservative areas, they're like, a lot of them probably don't speak much English and they're kind of like on the outskirts politically. I don't think they feel politically empowered at all because they're living kind of tenuously, like in a, you know, they, none of them own land and like, they're just there doing work to try and get by and feed their families. So it's mostly these white farmers and ranchers who are pretty conservative. And a lot of them are against the mine though, because they are worried about the pollution. They're worried about 
all these trucks full of chemicals going past their kids' school. Um, you know, and in many cases, they're hunters who go up and, and hunt um, birds or deer or something up where they want to build this mine. And um, they don't want to see that. So there's interesting overlaps there. Um, one of them, like you mentioned, Eduardo, this one woman told me multiple times that she doesn't think women should have the right to vote, which I thought was a joke at first. And then I realized she wasn't joking. Um, I didn't know what to say. <laughs> I didn't know how to connect with her after that, to tell the truth. Um, but yeah, but I just try and connect with people in a real way as much as I can, because, you know, we are all human and like, I'm friends with some of these conservative folks on Facebook now. And I like see them posting about their kids and like, Oh, the, the flowers in my garden are looking really good this year. And, and I'm like, okay, like people are basically the same and we may have different views based on different knowledge and different understanding, different education, different cultural upbringing, but like they're people too. They're just people. And um, we're all flawed and we're all, probably right about some things that we believe and probably wrong about some things that we believe and hopefully open to changing and learning and talking with other people who have different views than us. Um, and we also all don't want to, none of us want to get lectured <laughs> or like told that we're wrong. So uh, that's a big thing for me, I guess, in these conversations is like, even when I disagree with someone, if they say something I disagree with, I'm not going to be like, let's fight about it. You know, I, I, um, I might not bring it up at all, you know, because like, I, I think, um, I think in political organizing work, like, um, to some extent at the relationship building level, like relationship comes first before the politics and, like if we can't just have a conversation and like sit down and eat lunch together or something or like just chat and have small talk, like we're never going to be able to organize together, you know, we're never going to be able to get anything done together. And so that's the first level is like just being willing to connect with people. And then, and then usually when you do that, like the conversation comes around to the important stuff you know, and you can bring it there and, and say like, well, I'm concerned about this, or we've been thinking about doing this. And, you know, what do you think? What's your opinion? And, and um, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I don't know that I have any great advice. That's just my experience of working with people is that, that type of thing. I know we've got to wrap it up here soon. We've been going two hours, but I just wanted to briefly, since we're talking about sort of like working across demographics and stuff there's a indigenous uh women's camp is that part of the oxam camp that's kind of cropped up more recently or how do the how do those kind of like gender dynamics play out or is that something that's present yeah so um the oxam camp um oxam i'm going to try and say it right but my paiute pronunciation is pretty bad Oxam Newe Momokone Nakudan, which means Indigenous Women's Camp. And um, so it's one, it's one camp, and it's basically just speaking to 
the leadership of these Native women who have been really at the forefront of this, um, specifically some elders, some spiritual leaders, some grandmothers who um, have really lent their hearts to this fight from the very beginning. Like some of these grandmas were feeding us delicious food up there at the first protest camp and just like bringing us food and coming up and sitting with us and telling us these old oral histories about the land and, and the, 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 the massacres that took place there and some of the medicinal plants and, um, and I mean, you all probably have this experience to some extent, like whether it's with your own grandma or, you know, somebody else's, uh, an older woman who's kind and generous and who is um, stepping into the role of an elder, you know, in terms of like elders usually aren't at the front. They're usually not carrying a bunch of stuff around or doing a bunch of physical labor. They're usually not, you know, giving a speech or, um, you know, being the, 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 the main organizing force or something like that. But elders can really be like the soul of something, whether it's a family or a community group or uh, a religious group or an activist group or effort, you know, in this case. And I think that's something that these, um, these older women, not, not all women, there are some men as well. Um, but that's the role that they've played in many ways throughout this is, um, being the heart, <laughs> the heart of it all, you know, we all came from mothers and regardless of your relationship with your own mother, like that mother child relationship is the most, that's like the fundamental unit of human society. In my opinion, is like mother child. And I think, um, so when you have these grandmothers who are sharing this wisdom and sharing these stories and like helping guide things. They change people's behavior. They change the tone of everything just by being there, just by existing, you know, and like holding space in the way that they do. Um, you know, these women, like they're not strong, <laughs> they're frail and old and, and sick and, and yet like have this incredible power that is, like the government is scared of them, frankly, you know, not because like they're going to grab a gun or something, but because like they just have this social power that cannot be ignored by anyone, whether it's the corporation or the police or, you know, other activists, visitors to the camp and to the area, journalists, all these people like they, um, I don't know what it is, but we're just, we're, Scientists, some scientists and primatologists say that we're the um, fifth chimpanzee species, like human beings are a, a type of chimpanzee. And, um, and I agree with that. I think we are. Um, well, I mean, it's clear to me that we are. Um, and, uh, and I think we have this very powerful, like social structure, like a lot of other primates do. And, um, and you know, elders have a really important role to play in that. Like we're one of these species in which our elders stay alive. Like most species, creatures don't get old. They like continue reproducing 
until they die and they die relatively young. But like humans have this different social structure in which elders stick around and they stick around because they play this really important role in like sharing wisdom, sharing knowledge, helping guide the culture moving forward. And, um, and so the Oxam camp, um, the indigenous women's camp is being steered in some ways by these really powerful um, elders, um, especially women who are, um, are helping make sure everything's done in a good way. And I think that is incredibly important because I look at myself and a lot of activists around a lot of the organizing efforts that are going on. And I just think to myself, like they need some elders. I think of that about myself too. Like I'm just immature, you know, I'm 35. I'm like a kid by the standards of, you know, human wisdom. Like I know some things and I have some knowledge and some abilities and like I'm young and energetic, but um, like everything that I've learned comes from my elders and, you know, people around me who I pick things up from. And, uh, and I don't think, uh, I think we need to respect that and like lift those people up and, and support them in the right ways. So I hope people come out to the camp. Um, I'm not there right now because of the legal threats. Um, we'll see if I get back there at some point. It's possible that um, there may be like a court order. I'm not sure if it's been signed by a judge, but there may be a court order that they're going to try and serve me with. I'm not really sure about that, um, which would mean that I would get arrested if I went back, but we'll see. Um, but I'm going to participate as much as I can and keep fighting as much as I can and uh, push forward. And also people, I know that you had a donate site. People can donate uh, financially to it. And I, I can also say that people should spread the word about what's going on there. I think the link that Thacker Pass, Protect Thacker Pass link is it's really a good starting point for people to get introduced to what's going on. Yeah, thanks, Andrew. Yeah, so there's two websites I would recommend. There's the Oxam camp, oxam.org. And then there's a Protect Thacker Pass website, which has a lot of background information, history about the whole campaign, um, a lot of articles and photography and stuff like that. <laughs> the Oxam camp is new as of the past week and a half, um, but Protect Thacker Pass has been ongoing for, for more than two years now. So we've sort of got that whole archive of information and so on. And, uh, and we're supporting the camp as best we can. And... Um, yeah, I hope people will come out in increasing numbers because that's the only way the destruction of the land has already started at Thacker Pass on a pretty large scale. And the only possible way of making sure that that place is protected is if there is a mass movement of people mobilizing to protect it. And um, that's going to require everyone who's listening, everyone who's watching to spread the word, to talk to your friends and family, to go look at the website, to consider if you can help personally in whatever way um ideally as many people out there as possible that's what the elders have called for is is people to join uh, thank you i guess this is a good place to conclude yeah and also are i see that you are start you've, you've been putting up um regular um videos are there videos that you would that we could share as well or what would you think about that 
Yeah, I think anything that's on Protect Thacker Pass, I know you're welcome to share. And I think anything that's on Oxam Camp, you'd be welcome to share as well. I've seen that material getting shot, shared around widely, and I don't think they're, um, you know, protecting copyright at all costs or anything like that. I think that the idea is to spread the word. So if y'all want to copy some of that material and start getting it out there, that's very welcome. Uh, so yeah, we will do that. So we're just letting our what's left uh, what's left audience know. If you see something that's not just our normal show, but just video of some place that looks like there's shrubs and things like that, that's what you're seeing. You're seeing what's going on there, and um, it's part of just letting people know that this is a struggle that we think is really important, and there's going to need to be more. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. All right. Well, everyone, just hang on for just a minute. I'm just about to end here. There we go. Well, that does it for this week's episode. What's Left is a weekly political podcast slash channel challenging the mainstream left. We post information about our topics and our guests on the episode notes wherever we found this episode or on our blog at whatsleftpodcast.com. Uh, you can find past episodes to this podcast slash channel there and connect with us. I remind folks, if you like anything you have heard here, please subscribe, rate, review, turn on your Turn on your notifications to any of our platforms on Spotify, iTunes Podcast, Stitcher, Google Play, BitChute, Odyssey, YouTube, Rumble, or Telegram. And you can find our blog and any of those links in the episode notes where we found this episode. And if you would like to give us feedback about something you've heard or suggest something for us to cover, contact us, contact us through our blog. I'm Eduardo Barca with co-host Jessica and, and uh, Andy Lipson. And thank you very much, uh, uh, Max, for joining us, uh, author, uh, Bright Green Lies, How the Environmental Movement Lost Its Way and What We Can Do About It, as well as organizer, writer, uh, and wilderness guide. Thank you for joining us, Max. We expect to have you in the future again. And, uh, and that does it. Thank you, everyone. Ciao. <laughs> Thank you all.